This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we see a new or newish film in cinemas or on streaming and compare and contrast it with movies of days gone by. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a blogger at Flaw in the Iris at halifaxbloggers.ca and I'm the CTV Atlantic movie guru. And I'm Stephen Cook, arts and lifestyles reporter for the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. In the next hour, we're taking a look at Blood Quantum from Jeff Barnaby. He's a Mi'kmaq filmmaker from Quebec. And we're also looking at films by indigenous filmmakers in colonial or settler countries from around the world. Hi, and welcome to Lens Reviewers, the movie podcast that looks at films from days gone by and compares them to new things that we can see in theaters and streaming services and and uh, even physical media from time to time. And, and this week, we're taking a look at films by Indigenous filmmakers from North America and other parts of the world where voices that are often not heard in mainstream media get a chance to tell their stories and, uh, and and relate the stories of their past. Sometimes it's folklore, sometimes it's recent political history. And uh, in all times uh, of the films that we've seen on this show, they're all very gripping, moving, informative, enlightening, and, uh, and, and really moving uh, portraits of lives that we should be learning more about. And, uh, and, and films like these are, are a great way to, to have an entry point into the lives of indigenous people uh, around the world. So uh, we're going to start in Canada and fairly close to home with a film called Blood Quantum. It's uh, it's a zombie movie, which I think probably helped the film get some attention because it's very well done, directed by Jeff Barnaby, who also wrote the film. It's his second feature film. And uh, Jeff Barnaby hails from the Listaguch community, First Nations community, just over the New Brunswick border in Quebec, just across from Campbellton. And I think a, a, a lot of what uh, a lot of what Jeff Barnaby experienced growing up uh, being uh being from a First Nation reserve and being so close to uh, uh, New Brunswick community across the across the river, I think a lot of that is reflected in this film because Blood Quantum is about a zombie plague that descends upon a community that is sort of split up in a similar way. There's the reserve, the fictional Red Crow Reserve, which he also featured in his first film, Rhymes for Young Ghouls, which we'll also talk about in a moment, and, uh, and the town across the river, which um, is not Campbellton, but it seems like a very similar relationship. So it's it's a bit of the kind of the apocalypse and a, and a bit of a zombie attack movie, and it's it's very effective on uh, on both levels as the community rallies to to fight the zombies uh, and the plague, which apparently does not affect the uh, indigenous characters in the film. They're immune to the zombie disease, if you will, but they still have to fight them off, fight off the uh, the uh, the intruders from the from the white community who want to get to safety in the more barricaded uh, compound that they have at the Red Crow Reserve, but they're also bringing the disease in with them. So there's a lot of historical parallels to things that happened in the past in this film, and it's 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 an amazing movie that works on so many different levels uh, beyond just being a a zombie film set on a, a remote. Uh, remote reserve so uh this uh this got a lot of acclaim uh last year and uh showed uh, barnaby as a as a pretty powerful force in in canadian film not just as an indigenous filmmaker but as a canadian filmmaker who's making uh immediate 
and, and, and necessary film that really grabs your attention. He's got an amazing visual style as well. And, uh, and, and I think, uh, I think a great hand with his, uh, his actors as well. He's, he's, and, uh, he's certainly a talent to watch on, on many levels. And this film, uh, is, is just a, a remarkable movie on every level. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I absolutely agree with you, Stephen. Uh, there is a lot to enjoy here. Uh, at Blood Quantum, which is available on demand now. And, uh, you know, I'm, I've talked a lot about I'm not really a horror guy, uh, but this film really, like, I'm not going to go out of my way to watch a zombie movie or what have you, but this film really grabbed me. I loved uh, how much humor there is, how much the ways in which the film has really potent allegorical power. Uh, you know, the story is basically, you know, as you mentioned, we start on in Red Crow, this reservation where a fish is pulled out of the water, but it won't die. Uh, and later, of course, it's the white people who simply don't expire without beheading or immolation. Uh, and the indigenous folks, as you said, are immune to this virus. But then we and we get to know a few of these characters, uh, a local cop, his son, uh, his ex-wife. There's also this badass kid, Lysol, and uh, who's half brother to the kid, uh, Joseph and Charlie, who is Joseph's pregnant girlfriend. Uh, so these are kind of the characters we get to know. And, uh, you know, when the apocalypse does show up, we sort of have a pre apocalypse and post-apocalypse movie here uh there's a real sort of road warrior style heavy, heavily armed outpost this this uh this community turns into uh, and even maybe a touch of sort of red dawn i was thinking about while watching it uh and and it gets complicated because you know these uh settlers and these white people just keep showing up hoping for protection and and you know it becomes a question about whether they're going to do that whether they're going to let them in uh you know using zombies to channel themes of colonialism and its costs also the suggestion of environmental racism is a big yes. part of this uh you know it it the film just sizzles with all these kind of uh relevant uh, issues and uh, yeah, I, I really thought it was cleverly done in that regard. Plus, it completely satisfies if you want to see you know chainsaws through heads, uh, if you want to see um, plenty of gore and that kind of thing. Uh, really enjoyed like there's even little animated sort of asides. Uh, stylistically, there's a lot going on here, um, and I, I wanted to give a shout out for the the greatest Canadian zombie nickname ever, which is Zed Sickles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, the, the, there's so much going on in this film and uh you know every every aspect of it the, from the cinematography, the production design, uh Barnaby's got an amazing eye, uh but also he's 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 really is a master storyteller as well. There is uh there is a lot of sort of zombie related violence. I mean, the main characters, even though they're immune to whatever virus or whatever it is that's creating the zombies, of course, no one's immune to being torn apart by a ravenous horde of, of flesh eaters. So, you know, it's not like they're not a threat at all, but, um, you know, that they, they become the heroes because they have no other choice. And, uh, it's, it's kind of, uh, in a way that the, the indigenous people are the kind of, shepherds of the land as it were and here we see them you know as as the plague spreads they are returning to this role as uh the rest of the community succumbs to this uh this plague and 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 it just kind of goes back to that traditional role i guess and and, and meanwhile the virus itself is represented by elements of history you you think of colonialists spreading diseases brought from europe and so on and that is that is clearly uh 
clearly an uh, an allegory that uh, is being brought out here in this film and uh, it's 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 not hard to miss and it really makes the events of the film so much more potent but at the same time uh it's all balanced out by this emotional resonance with with the characters and and uh you know the losses that they feel within their own community as they're torn apart by various you know into various factions and various jealousies and and various uh, political stances kind of come to the fore you know it's like do we forsake our own humanity for the sake of self-preservation or you know do we try and help these people that uh, have come to us for help despite the fact that you know we have been the oppressed peoples for so long and it's uh, it, it asks a lot of really serious questions in the midst of all this mayhem and there's a lot of humor in it too i mean that's it's it's just so thoroughly enjoyable uh while still having a serious message and uh, it's 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 amazing how he keeps all those balls in the air throughout the film yeah no i agree i agree it's it's a really cleverly made well done film it satisfies on multiple levels and i hope that hope people are getting a chance to see it you know uh, as i said given given uh, i'm a little disconnected from sort of the horror genre i i i really hope that this is getting you know, in those horror film festivals out there and, and, uh, and on streaming, I hope people are catching it because, because uh, it is, so to speak, because it is, oh, uh, <laughs> because it's, uh, it's pretty terrific. Um, now you watched Rhymes for Young Ghouls. This is uh, Jeff Barnaby's first feature. I haven't seen it, but I, do you want to say a few things about that, Stephen? Yeah, I found it, uh, I believe I found it on the CBC Gem platform is where I found it, where you can watch it for free. It gets interrupted by ads from time to time, but um, but they're pretty they're pretty short. They're like you know ten fifteen second web ad kind of thing. So it's it's not as intrusive as it sounds, and it's a great way to see the film, you know, in good quality and uh, and for free. <laughs> and and it, it's it's a really great compliment to Blood Quantum. It's set on the Red Crow Mi'kmaq Reservation, uh, just like Blood Quantum. It's uh, takes place a few years earlier, nineteen seventy six. It's it's not a it's not a horror movie per se, although there are nods to Blood Quantum sort of scattered throughout the film because uh, from what I've read, Barnaby made this film made rhymes for young ghouls while he was still trying to raise the money to make the much more um, epic uh, Blood Quantum, which of course would require special effects and. <laughs> And lots of fake blood and mayhem and and so on. So he already had Blood Quantum in mind when he was making this film, which came out in 2013. So that tells you how long um, Blood Quantum was kind of in the works. Uh, and, and there's actually references to zombies uh, early in the film. And there's a there's a strip bar that appears in this film that's also referenced uh, back in Blood Quantum. So it's and it's the Red Crow Reservation. He's kind of or sorry Reserve, I should say. It's it. it um, it does kind of create his own universe. And I, I, I suspect that there will be more tales from Red Crow over the course of his career. Because I think Blood Quantum was probably successful enough to, to enable him to, to keep going with, with more features while he does documentaries and shorts and other projects on the side. In this case, Rhymes for Young Ghouls is, uh, primarily focuses on a young woman named Ayla who, whose life is just scarred by an early tragedy from her childhood where her brother was accidentally killed in a, in a car accident and then her mother committed suicide and her father was taken away to jail as a result of it all. And so she's basically had to kind of fend for herself. Her uncle, Burner, kind of looks out for her, but she's become pretty self-reliant and she's managed to stay out of the residential schools by paying the... Um, the truant tax, which uh, the local Indian agents, if uh, if you can pay, you don't have to go to the schools. And so she 
basically helps uh, deal dope on the reserve and does other things, uh, does artwork. And, and she's a gifted artist. And uh, all she can think about is staying out of the school, you know, preserving her, her own self-worth and uh, trying to stay on the good side of the Indian agents, which is very hard to do because they are freaking evil. And, uh, and hopefully at some point, you know, being able to get out of Red Crow and live her own life somewhere else and presumably pursue her art because she's shown to be very, very gifted with, uh, with the art that she learned from her mother in flashbacks, but has, you know, obviously surpassed it to become her own voice. So it's this, this kind of heavy drama because the, the dad does get out of prison and comes back. It's uh, Nova Scotia born actor, Glenn Gould, who's very good. He's very good in everything. Um, you may remember him from, uh, the movie North Mountain that Bretton Hannum directed uh, here in Nova Scotia a few years ago. And he's also, he was also on Cardinal, um, the uh, the crime drama shot in Northern Ontario. And he's in a ton of stuff and he's always terrific. And he's amazing here as the father, Joseph, who uh, has a long history of dealing with the these Indian agents who really have it out for him. So it's got this kind of crime undercurrent. It's almost film noir in a way, set on the reserve. The, you know, the, there's a lot of dark undercurrents happening throughout the story and uh and then we also you know the film kind of shifts into the atmosphere of the residential schools which is just shown to be com- this completely evil campaign to wipe the heritage of the children who attended there you know they're told they can only speak english um they're only taught the curriculum of that's handed down by the queen as they say in the movie and uh for everything you read about it in in uh, in the news or in articles or, or books it's just to actually see it portrayed even though it's it's i'm sure it's heightened to a degree for drama dramatic purposes but but it it does feel very real and very much uh something that we're still atoning for and still need to kind of make up for for this uh this this basically this the stolen generation that uh were spirited away to these schools and and um you know, suffered in, in immense trauma and, uh, you know, this cultural genocide that took place under, you know, under our government's watch. So it's got that very serious undercurrent. Uh, and, uh, and then it turns into a heist movie <laughs> for the last <laughs> chunk of the, I mean, Jeff Barnaby likes to really cram his movies full of story, uh, but he does it without losing any of the emotion or any of the kind of character nuance. And uh, this film is just full of great characters, both good and evil and some kind of on the fence, uh, you know, that some people just doing what they have to do to get by. But uh, I really recommend, uh, you know, watching both films, uh, not necessarily watching rhymes for young ghouls before blood quantum. I watched uh, rhymes afterward and, but it was still kind of enriched by the, by having watched uh, the other film. So that they go together really well. And I, I really recommend uh, catching both. Of All them. right. I'll look forward on the CBC gym for sure. Uh, yeah. It's been on my list to watch for a while. I remember when it played here at the uh, Atlantic international film festival, and I'm sorry to have missed it there. So, uh, um, but I will definitely catch up to it. Now you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the specter of residential schools. We should talk about a movie that, deals with that directly it's from sweden it's called sammy blood from 2017 and as a canadian i think sammy blood is a remarkably intensely relevant for anyone who doesn't understand the legacy of residential schools just watch this because it really gets to the grips with it it's a Written and directed by Amanda Kernel, who uh, or Kernel, excuse me, is a filmmaker descended from both Swedish and the Sami. The Sami, of course, the Scandinavian indigenous people. They were once known as Laplanders. Um, 
it's uh, at least from the the settler community that that name um and it's inspired by stories from her sami family which takes us back to the 1930s where indigenous children were being educated in these state-run boarding schools and uh, made to feel inferior for their culture which of course sounds very familiar to us in canada these days um and it's a story of christina who is a sami woman in her 70s going home for her little sister's funeral she clearly hates or is uncomfortable with her indigenous culture and herself to some degree. And the film's focus is mostly in flashback on teenage Christina, who is in her teenage years called Ella Marie, uh, and, uh, and her younger sister, uh, Nyena, and the two girls who are, who in real life are Sammy and are sisters in real life, play sisters, uh, their names, uh, Lene, Cecilia Sparrock and uh, Mia Erica Sparrock, excuse my pronunciation, and uh, they are taken away from their mother and their grandfather to go to the residential schools, but it's mostly on the elder girl and how she's made to feel ashamed and she's angry about about the way she's being treated, but she's contrary and she's strong, she's determined, and she, she does basically what her teacher says she shouldn't do, which is to go to Uppsala in the south in order to start a new life and find herself... Uh, away from all of this this conflict and uh she meets a swedish boy and uh she tries to hide her heritage so the sort of the lessons she learns from the swedes she sort of absorbs internally and all this self-loathing is is uh you know she she takes her it's a fascinating portrait of how uh you know stubborn and uh self-determined people can have that that feeling turned inward by the way she's treated by the uh, majority people in this community. And uh, this is kind of a, it's a movie that really broke my heart uh, repeatedly. Um, the performances are incredible. The way it's shot, it's, is really, it's really gorgeous. You, it's shot in summer and the film really makes the best of those long twilights in Sweden where the daylight just refuses to fade. Uh, and the lead performance by Lene Cecilia Sparrick is remarkable. Uh, so yeah, and I, I watched this at, uh, Carbon Arc Cinema, our uh, local independent cinema series that I volunteer at, and uh, this, yeah, two or three years ago, and it was, it really stayed with me. Um, uh, and I guess, but this is a, still a pretty new movie to you, isn't it, Stephen? Yeah, I didn't get a chance to see it at Carbon Arc, uh, so I kind of regret that. But I'm glad it was available on. I think Hoopla is uh, is where I watched. I think it's also on Prime um, or Amazon Prime. But uh, it's just a heartbreaking story. And, uh, I, you know, I appreciate the fact that it shows us that the residential school system that we had in Canada didn't just emerge out of thin air, that there were precedents for it, that it was part of a, a broader worldwide campaign. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say there was a conspiracy or anything like that, but it seems like at the time in the, you know, the mid 20th century or, you know, around, around about there, there, there was, you know, this attempt by many nations uh, to to basically homogenize their populations, no matter what their background was. Uh, you know, they wanted to bring everybody into line, maybe because they saw indigenous communities as being kind of an inconvenience, I guess. And if you can just kind of wipe their wipe out their culture and and just bring them into line with the, the mainstream society, then things will be a lot easier down the road. And I think that was kind of the approach that was happening, certainly happening in Canada and, uh, and happening um, in Scandinavia, as we see from, from Sammy blood. 
uh, and uh, and I, you know, you, you can just feel the um, connection that uh, Cornell has to this work. It's uh, adapted from a short she made um, called Northern Great Mountain, which is more about the the older woman kind of coming to terms with returning to her homeland for the first time in presumably decades, um, and then expanding it with the flashbacks to um, to young. Uh, Young L, Marja, Marja, and Christina, as she later becomes. Yeah, just the, the images, uh, you know, of of her with her family, with the reindeer, and her getting her taste of, you know, what she, she sees as being kind of civilized society, and wanting to be part of that. It is kind of heartbreaking because you know ultimately you realize she she learns what she lost. You know, she had this connection that was special, that was uh, unlike anything that anybody in Uppsala could have ever uh, experienced. And yet sh- she wanted to basically just throw all that away. And uh, yeah, it, it, it just uh, breaks your heart over and over throughout the course of the film. But the performances are so good and, and uh, the story is so real. I mean, the, apparently Cornell, the things that uh, they yell, uh, the, there's these group of cruel boys who hang out near the school and they yell things at, uh, at Christina that apparently Cornell heard when she was a kid from from some of the from some of the boys from southern communities uh, when she was growing up and so you know all of this feels very real and uh, even though it's the story takes place the bulk of the story takes place almost a hundred years ago uh, it still feels very current and very much similar to what uh, what uh, indigenous youth in this country experienced over the years. <laughs> You're listening to Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast, and uh, we're talking today about films from indigenous filmmakers. Uh, And we are talking about uh, uh, films from, well, actually indigenous filmmakers from across the globe. We're focusing on, uh, in this segment, I believe, uh, filmmakers from uh, North America or Turtle Island, as it's sometime known. Uh, And we're going to talk right now about a film that uh, we both just recently saw, uh, One Day in the Life of Noah Pigatkuk. Uh, this is from Zacharias Kunik, who made Atanajarat the Fast Runner, uh, and apparently an Arctic version of The Searchers in 2016, which neither of us have seen. But uh, The Fast Runner was was a, a big deal for Canadian cinema. And uh, it, the, this filmmaker, he is, he's kept working, telling stories from the north, from uh, Inuit and uh northern communities above the Arctic Circle. Um, and uh, this is one that is based on actual events. Noah Pigatkuk uh, is played by, and I will apologize for my pronunciation, but I'm going to give it a try, Apiata Koterik. And he is, his character is set in 1961. His character is the leader of a sort of family of hunters traveling across the ice on a sunny day. It all takes place almost in real time on, on a single day. And uh, they cross paths with another relative and uh, who they interestingly refer to as their grandmother, even though he uh, is, is, is is a is a younger dude uh and uh there's a lot of joy and a lot of humor here and everyone's happy to see each other even uh when the uh visitor is joined uh by a white man played by kim bodnia who's a danish actor uh fans of killing eve will recognize uh and then it becomes the film the bulk of the film is a conversation between the uh government agent and um and noah about uh, the future of the community. The government agent basically wants them to to move into a settlement and then there they will receive 
government money, that's sort of the carrot to get them to move from their home where they live to a to a a wooden house with a stove with a with a uh, with heating and money and uh and then education for the children and that's that's really the bottom line is that the government feels it is their responsibility to educate the children and give them a future away from this traditional lifestyle and uh you know and basically it's this argument which has been used you know until fairly recently <laughs> over and over again and noah is just kind of like well I, I don't understand why this is a draw. Why should we change our lifestyle? Why should we do this? You know, there is every every conceivable issue that comes up between negotiations between indigenous communities and the sort of settler government is broached in the course of this conversation. It's it's fascinating. And then it's and then the the uh, the other the other actor who uh, whose surname is also Kunuk. He is he he's very slowly gradually communicates the message back and forth and and we get to see and hear both sides and the translation which is sometimes not entirely clear uh in places where it kind of collapses uh because it's not only that there's a different language being spoken there's really a, an inc- entirely different perspective on what values are what's important and uh it is actually it's a really fascinating uh exercise uh, especially when you consider how it was shot on location. It's beautifully shot. And and what the actors communicate, I guess they did this without scripts and they just they just, you know, embodied what the point of view was and then they went with it. And uh yeah, it's it's a pretty special film. Yeah, well, I mean the, the people in the film apart from Kim Bodnia, they they have a family connection to this story. Apayata Kotierk is uh was actually the nephew of the real life Noah Piugatuk, and uh, he already knows the story because the story has been told. It's it's this film is basically a a a, a visual representation of oral history, which is why it's all about the conversation and and the meeting between the the Indian agent and 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 Noah's uh, Noah's crew, and. So they already know this story. It's been told many times in their community over and over over the years since 1961. And uh, so it's you know basically I think they just went in with an outline and Kim Kim Bodnia had had basically his mission in mind. You know he had he had to just kind of do his best to persuade them that they need to come to the settlement in um, Iglukik and uh, and and you know live in the live in the settlement houses and send their kids to the to the residential school and and uh and he's kind of not wavering from that point he's he's not a bully but he's also acting with this kind of government authority you know he often kind of makes it look like oh, i'm just doing my job and this is what what's been deemed best for you and and all this kind of thing and he's he's got this kind of paternal approach to everything and and you know fairly condescending of course as you would expect from someone in that position and and meanwhile noah and his his family members and his 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 friends who are out hunting they don't even know the concept of money why would they everything they do is barter pieces of paper with a woman's face on it what good is that you know to them you know they they deal in 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 trading salmon and seal and and uh, that's how their community has worked for for generations so his carrot on the stick, the, the the money in the house is like, well, we've already got what we need, and that, and it's that's the sticking point for this this back and forth, and it's it's 
painful because you cut you know the history you know where things wound up and you know that the boss man as they call him you know you know there are dozens or hundreds of him out there doing the exact same job for for tribes all across the north and in other parts of the country and it's just the same story that's was repeated in communities all over the place and and uh and again uh, uh zacharias canuck um, he was actually born where the film takes place. I mean, he was born in the late 50s, so he would have been an infant when this was happening. So it's basically telling his own story of what happened to his family through the eyes of uh, Noah Piagatuk, which I guess he got to know as he grew up and in later years, because we actually get to see the real life uh, Noah uh, at the end of the film through some archival footage. So it's, it's a true story, and that just seems to make it that much more effective, painful, haunting, I mean, whatever words I can use to describe you know, what happened to these people in this film, in, in this story. Yeah, no, it is. And uh, yeah, I mean, it takes it brings in discussions of religion and the difference between the Anglicans and the Catholics and that influence on this community as well. In some ways, they have already experienced, even though they seem very independent and they have their own culture, they already experienced a certain amount of colonial uh, values uh, impacting them. And, uh, you know, but... Noah reads the the Bible when he first uh, awakes in the morning, but uh, he does doesn't trust the the priests, and he just sees this character coming from the government as just another you know another form of of the uh, of, of of values and and the priests of the past coming to uh, impact their community in a way that he's not interested in being part of it. So yeah, it is it is a remarkable film. It's a very complex. Uh, story that's being told and in a, in a way that but told very simply uh, in, in, a, in a visually just gorgeous way too it's just like the camera just sits in the circle with these people as they they discuss these issues uh, with the great white vast emptiness behind them so yeah it's it's terrific uh now we also want to talk about uh, a very different film but uh, one that was marketed as the first feature about and by Native Americans, made by Native Americans, uh, and that's Smoke Signals from 1998. It's available. Oh, the previous film that we mentioned it was is on. We watched it on demand, but uh, Smoke Signals is on Hoopla, and I was pretty happy to to watch this. Uh, the The trailer made it seem like you know, sort of a cheery, sort of a caper movie. Uh, from the 90s and it, it has some elements of it that are a little bit 90s in its style and 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 uh visual production values but it's actually a, a really interesting uh charming kind of road movie slash comedy slash drama about people coming to terms with the a family family drama but also addressing a lot of real life uh, real life problems on the a reservation in and out in, in the reservation and also on the road in America and uh, and it's a it stars Adam Beach as as Victor and uh, Evan Adams as Thomas and their buddies who've been connected since they were kids. Victor's dad Arnold, played by the excellent Gary Farmer, was an alcoholic and he made life tough for this family, including his mother, played by the legendary Tantu Cardinal. But he was also kind of renowned in the community for having saved Thomas's life when he was a baby from a burning house that killed Thomas's parents. So we see all, a lot of this in flashback that Arnold abandoned his son and wife and drove from the their home in Idaho to Arizona. And uh, not long after the start of the film, Victor and Thomas hear that Arnold has died. Victor wants to go to Arizona, collect his dad's pickup truck, 
He doesn't have any money, but Thomas has some saved. So they go together by Greyhound. And these two guys are really terrific characters. You know, Victor is kind of serious and troubled, but charismatic and funny, whereas Thomas won't shut up telling stories of the past, whether they're true or not, which annoys Victor to no end. And we get a lot of sharp gags about their understanding of the image of Native Americans in, in the broader um, American settler culture. And it, that, that a lot of that, there's a lot of humor and cleverness. And yeah, I, I found myself really caught up in Smoke Signals. Uh, and uh, I was pretty impressed with it. What did you think, Stephen? Oh, it's, it's a wonderful film. It's, it's, it's interesting to compare it to something like, for example, Rhymes for Young Ghouls, where it's, you know, it's about these these young characters, how they're kind of adapting to the present while also still uh, maintaining the ways of the past. You know, clearly heritage is important to them, but it, they at the same time they recognize it's a changing world, and it's it's handled with a, with a lot of depth and humor. And it's uh, you know, it was it was a landmark film at the time it came out. Chris Ayer, the director, I, I believe he's um, he's of I think Arapaho Navajo heritage. But it's actually based on a book by Sherman Alexie. But I, I think he brings a lot of uh, detail to the story, to life on on the reservation as it's portrayed. And then the road trip aspect of it as uh, Victor Joseph and, and Thomas builds the fire, kind of explore beyond the world that they know uh, is all really fascinating and really heartfelt. And, and, and I, I, there really isn't a false note in the movie. It's such a strong debut. He, he made a film a few years later called Skins, which looks... Which, unfortunately, I don't think it had the same kind of reach as Smoke Signals did. I mean, Smoke Signals was a big Sundance hit. It, you know, it played locally. It was it was shown at Wormwoods here in Halifax at the time. Um, and and Skins looks great as well. It, it stars uh, Gary Farmer, who's 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 uh, you know he he also shows up in uh, Blood Quantum. He plays Moon, who's not a good dude in Blood Quantum. Um, but uh, in Skins, he and Gary Graham Green play brothers on a Sioux, uh, the Sioux Pine Ridge reservation. I would love to see that. I wish it was widely available. I went looking for it. I thought maybe we could talk about it for this podcast. I could not find a copy, so I'm going to keep searching for that one. But but here he has he has a, a, a really steady hand and uh, and just a great material and a great cast to work with. And it's, it's just a great portrayal of uh, the lives of people who uh, are getting by, but with by being true to themselves, and uh, and maybe not letting the outside world affect them quite so much, and it, it's it's really one worth watching and returning to. Yeah, I was glad to see it for this. Uh, and we watched a film called Deidre and Laney Rob a Train, and this is from Sydney Freeland, who is Navajo, and uh, it was written by Shelby Farrell. Uh, and this is a Netflix film uh, from 2017, and it's a real treat. It it totally reminded me a little bit of uh, Booksmart, which coming from me is very high praise. You'll remember, Stephen, this Booksmart was like my favorite movie uh, when it came out uh, last year. Yeah, it's a story of two sisters in Shelbyville, a dead-end Idaho town. There's Idaho again. Uh, Deidre, played by Ashley Murray, and Lainey Tanner, played by Rachel Crow, and their mother, Goldie, played by Danielle Nicolette, has been thrown in jail for a very bad decision she made. Uh, Deidre, the elder, is brilliant, and she is uh, going to be valedictorian in her class, in her high school class, but she's had to quit any dreams of going to college because she's got to support her little sister and little brother, Jet, played by Lance Gray. So she comes up with a plan to break into the freight trains that pass through their backyard and rip off the goods within. Unfortunately, this banditry doesn't go unnoticed by a train detective played by the awesome Tim Blake Nelson, uh, nor the kid's father 
father, Chet, played by David Sullivan, who comes back into their lives. This is while Lainey is a finalist in the Miss Teen Idaho contest at school, and the school guidance counselor, played by Sashir Zamata, who uh, is an SNL uh, veteran, and she's really funny here, who wants to, you know, do something for Lainey. And uh, it's a very funny comedy, which also qualifies, I guess, as a heist movie. We've done an episode on heist movies. I think this would totally fit in. And it has echoes of a Western with convolutions in the plot that you just don't see coming. And it's a it's a movie with, it's, a, it's all these light sort of like escapist elements, but it has a lot more on its mind. There's a subtext here about the few options available to people in poverty and how the system is fixed against these people. This while this huge corporate uh, business goes right through their backyard. Like every day they see the train with all these big, big uh, moving containers on them and all this, all these products going to people who can afford them. Yeah, it's it's a really clever and light and fun little movie. Oh yeah, it's a total delight. It was perfect. I watched it right before we started uh, recording, and it's a perfect Sunday morning. I'll call it a lighthearted caper film, but there's clearly more serious things at work because it does have a lot to say about the justice system, about consumer culture, uh, about uh, the flaws in the education system. There's a lot going on in this film, even though it is a comedy. It is done in a with a very kind of light touch but at the same time you know the problems that the characters face are, are quite real and uh you know and and quite pertinent to uh, to what's happening right now sydney uh sydney freeland made this film i guess it it got picked up from one of the film festivals by netflix uh for distribution i haven't seen her 2014 film drunk town's finest but uh i i, I would like to see that film to see how it compares and since uh, since Deirdre Laney came out, she's done a ton of, of television work in the last uh, three years. Um, she's been just nonstop for shows like Tales of the City, Fear the Walking Dead, Nancy Drew. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm guessing she brings a pretty, pretty interesting eye to those fairly uh, kind of mainstream series. So I don't know if... Um, if Freeland will get around to another feature anytime soon, but uh, keep an eye out for her name on uh, on series television. I'm, I'm sure those are very interesting installments of, of those uh, series. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. This is an episode that is looking at indigenous filmmaking from around the world. Uh, North America, we had Sammy Blood from Europe. And now we're taking a look at uh, the other side of the planet, the other side of the equator, and some films from New Zealand and Australia, where there is a strong uh, indigenous uh, filmmaking community, the Maori community in New Zealand, Aboriginal community in Australia. And we're going to start with a, a very powerful film from 1994, which uh, left a mark on me and pretty much anybody who saw it uh, at the time, Once We're Warriors, about um, a Maori family who's living in the city, and uh, what that means, you know, what the uh, encroachments of the urban community mean to the family and, and as they look at what they've left behind in, the, in their rural community and 
whether or not moving to the city is progress of any kind and and how how these forces kind of tear the family apart it's uh, a a brutal depiction of domestic violence as well if you haven't seen it you kind of have to brace yourself for that watching it again after such a long time it has not lost any of its impact in, in its power and in its uh, in its message now the film uh, the film was directed by Lee Tamahori who is uh, a Maori director who basically worked his way up through the New Zealand film industry working pretty much every job imaginable in the business in the, in the camera department sound you know eventually becoming second unit and assistant director and uh, and finally made his first feature once were warriors in 1994 after that uh, the, the film was was such an international hit that uh, he immediately started getting these Hollywood assignments and uh, didn't actually get to return to New Zealand to make a film until 2016 until four years ago with a film called uh, the Patriarch uh, which uh, is not widely available uh, through any streaming services that I could find, but um, it does. It did reunite him with Tamura Morrison, who uh, was also the star of Once Were Warriors. He plays the father of the family. He plays Jake, who's um, you know who speaks with his fists. Basically, you know when we see him take down a a, a muscle bound goon in a bar, we know that this guy is a force to be reckoned with. And uh, and then when he uh, takes out his anger on his wife Beth uh, the film does not hold back and the I think I think the film is meant to be kind of a wake-up call to to uh, not only the the dangers of domestic violence but also the dangers of of losing your culture and what happens when you uh, you know leave your past behind but sort of forsake some of the lessons that have been passed down to you by those of who have gone before um, and uh, it's it's just uh, it's just a, a powerful and sometimes punishing portrayal of what this family has to go through. There's some intense tragedy that happens over the course of the film as uh, as their children try to react to their parents' actions, but also try to adapt to their new situations. And and one boy winds up in incarceration, but it turns out to be uh, in this case he goes into kind of a youth center where. Um, there's a counselor who instills Maori pride back into him and he emerges um, all the stronger for it. Well, another son, the oldest son joins a street gang uh, and gets his face tattooed. But at the same time that uh, it has those tribal values that have been passed down, even though it's in a new kind of format in this new kind of urban uh, setting, um, you know, they still abide by those kind of uh, values of unity and family and brotherhood. So uh, it's it's a very complex portrait of, of this family and this community. And it's uh, it's definitely worth seeing if you haven't seen it before. Yeah, it was my first visit to this film uh, when we when I watched it uh, just uh, in the last couple of days. And uh, I always knew about it and I knew it was was well regarded, but I and of course, Lee Tamahori has gone on to direct all sorts of Hollywood films, uh, some better than others. But uh, he, you know, this is something connected to his community. And I, yeah, I found it a fascinating, the kind of structure of it felt sort of like a Greek tragedy to some degree. Like it's, the script is very on the nose and, the, you know, uh, themes are basically spelled out through through the dialogue and through this, the violence, which is intense and hard to watch in places. Um, but it is, uh, it, the cast, many of whom were recognizable to me have gone on to other things. I thought they were really good. There's a certain amount of that sort of nineties kind of gritty, uh, production value, which I guess, you know, is somewhat 
influenced by filmmakers like Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino, but uh, is very of the era. And uh, But I don't think is with this material, I don't think it's aged at all. I, I think it still really works well. And as you say, the the values, uh, it's, talk, it's talking about community values and, and also talking about violence and how violence can, if, if channeled, you know, healthily, uh, a, a, you know, a certain amount of aggression, it can be a positive thing. But then as we see with Jake, you know, if, if there's, if alcohol is involved and, and, you know, otherwise no other positive influence, how it can be turned inward and how it can affect everybody around, around the whole family is, is dealing with Jake's attitude, his violence and, and how, how grim that is. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, and I really also enjoyed how much music is in this film. A lot of great hip hop and soul and reggae sounds um, that give it a really rich kind of a texture that you might not find in other independent films. Um, yeah, and the performances are all really strong. Uh, it was really, really great watching this film. And uh, yeah, and I'm glad to glad to go back to '94. You know, recently, before we even decided on the subject matter today, Stephen, I was, uh, during the sort of long period of COVID, uh, I was wanting to catch up with films uh, that I hadn't seen by some really, you know, filmmakers I really enjoy, including Taika Waititi from uh, from New Zealand. Of course, he's famously uh, Maori, and uh, I, I believe he has some Jewish background as well. Uh, as he, I think he, he went for a long time. He was known as, uh, or he went by Taika Cohen. Uh, Boy from 2010 was one I hadn't seen, uh, but I watched it in the last couple of months, and it is a lot of fun. Um, of course, Waititi is much better known these days for having directed uh, Jojo Rabbit, having won an Academy Award, directed the Marvel movie Thor Ragnarok, Hunt for the Wilder People, and uh, the vampire comedy What We Do in the Shadows, which is now spun off into a series. But Boy is going back to, is a second feature. Uh, and I noticed a lot of sort of the humor and pathos that is in his other movies is already evidence in this one, uh, a delicate handling of tone and an interest in telling stories around children. Uh, You know, I guess you could say that uh, Thor Ragnarok doesn't have a lot of kids in it, but maybe Thor and Hulk are kind of overgrown kids anyway, I would say. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So yeah, boy, boy is, uh, it circles around an 11 year old uh, of the title. um, And uh, he is a, He's being raised by his grandmother in a house off the coast of New Zealand. His siblings and his cousins and his goat, he takes care of all of them when Nan goes away. Uh, It's 1984 and he loves Michael Jackson and he fantasizes about his super cool but absent old man. And when his father shows up, played by the filmmaker, Waititi, um, with his muscle car and his buddies fresh out of prison and looking for money buried in a nearby field, uh, Boy has to sort of reconcile his idea of who his father is with, or or who he believed his father was, with this childish, irresponsible dude who is now in his life. Um, you know, what we now probably call toxic masculinity. We see the lessons of a bad attitude passed on from father to son. Uh, interestingly, his father uses Hulk as a way to in- illustrate his anger, sort of Waititi predicting his own future there. I thought that was a <laughs> fascinating thing. Uh, yeah, I like Boy a lot. I, I love the uh, – <clears throat> I never realized how much 
Taika Waititi's accent, which he uses in great effect. Uh, this is is a community sound. Like I, I don't know that I watching this film, I realize everyone speaks with the same sort of cadence and uh, and tenor in a way. I guess having never visited New Zealand and not heard, uh, you know a story directly from this community. I, I didn't realize it. Of course, it's it's there in uh, Once We're Warriors as well, but it's particularly strong, I thought, in Boy. Um, it, it is, this, this film feels a little bit to me like a wildly comedic remake of the Sean Penn, Christopher Walken thriller At Close <laughs> Range, where you get this like undeserved lionizing of the elder by the younger, where the truth is all too clear to us in the audience. But it becomes much more uh, a drama towards the end, and there, the film sort of eases from laughs to sort of an aching sadness, which is also true of Jojo Rabbit and a lot of other Waititi stories. Um but it never loses a sense of place and its gorgeous sense of community and warmth or, or the laughs. It's, it's a very funny film too. Well, it's funny. And of course, uh, Deirdre and Lainey Robert train also has that kind of absentee father coming back into the picture, uh, theme to it as well, which is a kind of an interesting tie in there. And, uh, but, but of course, maybe not with the same kind of panache and bundle of mixed feelings that we get from, from boy and, and James Rolston who plays, boy um as he's called throughout the film is a is a fabulous young actor um i mean this film's from 2010 and then i saw him in a film from 2017 called pork pie where he's he he's basically takes part in a country long chase and a stolen um in a stolen uh, mini uh to get from one end of new zealand to the other uh and of course he's seven years older he's he's become a man over the course of those years it's just interesting to see how how much he's developed as an actor and, and how but how he still has this immense appeal um on camera and uh i recommend if you pork pie is available on a number of services it might be on hoopla i'm not sure but uh, i recommend checking that one out as well it's got a lot of humor and it's actually a remake of goodbye pork pie from the late 70s um minus some of the sexist attitudes of the 70s version but uh but he he's wonderful here as as a young actor uh, playing the 11 year old uh title character and and the interaction with the other members of the community with his other kids his uh, his love of michael jackson which you know given that it was 1984 is perfectly valid um you know, it's 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 all part of this wonderful kind of colorful patchwork uh, quilt. But I I, I think that uh, you know, Watiti wrote the script. Um, I'm guessing he threw in some of his own childhood experiences um, into the to the story and into the kind of nature of the community. And uh, his love for you know this group of people is so palpable. Uh, it just it just comes through in every scene. Uh, and and it you know it does have that kind of mix of a little bit of of of, uh, of threat and menace because his dad is such an unknown quantity and such a kind of a shady character and uh, so it 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 does that great push and pull of some amazing humor and some amazing um some amazing emotion and heart and it uh yeah it's it's i, I like it when he's working on this level i mean I, I enjoy his bigger films i mean i thoroughly enjoyed uh thor ragnarok and jojo rabbit and he's next doing another Thor movie and then a Star Wars film. But, you know, I think of this and Hunt for the Wilder People and and how well he works on a, on a you know, on a level of, of real kind of uh, down-to-earth stories. And I kind of hope he doesn't lose his feel for that as he works on more of these bigger budget projects and more fantastic things like, you know, those, what what we do in the shadows, of course, uh, his, his vampire movie and series. But uh, I keep hoping he returns to these kinds of stories, you know, from his own life, from his own community. And we'll, we'll hope, I'm, I'm sure we'll be seeing more of these in the future. Um, 
which he can probably, you know, make at, at his own discretion whenever he wants to. I'm sure. Yeah, hopefully we'll keep doing that. Um, so with the time we have less left on this episode of Lens Me Your Ears, um, we want to shift over to uh, Australia and a film by Warwick Thornton. Um, now, all of the movies in this segment, incidentally, are available on Canopy for anybody who wants to go and check them out. Um, but we're going to talk about Samson and Delilah from 2009. Uh, Thornton wrote and directed this film. Uh, he is Aboriginal and it won the Camera d'Or, which uh, at the 2009 Cannes Film Festival, um, this is, that's the sort of the best first feature film. And this is a story about two teenagers living in an, at a community somewhere in the Australian outback, I guess not far from Alice Springs. Um, the first obvious impression here is incredible poverty and privation. Samson is the, the one, te- one teenager played by Rowan McNamara. He huffs gas every morning, and it's pretty awful. Um, he's prone to outbursts of violence, unprovoked outbursts of violence towards his brothers and towards other other people. But um, and Marissa Gibson plays Delilah. She's taking care of her, excuse me, of her grandmother. And uh, Samson, of course, is interested in Delilah, but she's not especially interested in him. But uh, they do sort of team up and uh, they go to the city to try to improve their lot, which uh, unfortunately doesn't really happen. Uh, there's next to no dialogue in that opening segment. Uh, Samson, I guess, doesn't speak and Delilah doesn't just doesn't say very much. Um, but uh, yeah, the imagery of, of life in this community where, you know, it's not without humor. There's the, the three guys who get together to play the same looping over reggae song every day on the porch of a house over and over. And they just leave their guitars and drums and amps out on the porch like, there, there is a little bit of humor here, but it, it really it doesn't soft pedal the the difficulty, the the hardships of life for for these people, and uh, and that certainly isn't the case. You know, it doesn't it doesn't really get much better for these two teenagers when they 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 steal the community's only car and drive to the city and sleep under a bridge, and things just get worse from there. Uh, it's pretty un, unblinkingly bleak. Yeah, this is maybe not quite as painful to watch as Once for Warriors, but there are some some moments that just give you chills throughout the course of this film. But it's it's worth watching and sticking with it because of the performances of its two young leads who have to do so much without any dialogue at all for the most part. And uh, it really gives you a, a portrait of what these Aboriginal youth are up against and trying to carve out a life for themselves. You know, Delilah at least has some sort of future in her artwork, perhaps kind of like in Rhymes for Young Ghouls, in a way. And Samson, played by Rowan McNamara, just, he needs someone to show him the way, basically, and, and he doesn't have that. He has no support from any adults in the community. His brother is abusive and and uh, just, again, sends him into that spiral of, of huffing gas and not doing anything with his life. And, you know, you just want somebody to, to come along and, and help them and that the, the, there is no help, you know, the, and they, they're incapable of helping themselves, it seems, for the most part. So it just makes you wonder, okay, this is, you know, Warwick Thornton is probably drawing from his own experience. He also wrote this uh, script with Beck Cole and you just wonder where these kids are headed. It, it, it doesn't, and it ends on a note of hope and I'll leave it at that, but, um, it's it's certainly a powerful movie. You're not going to forget anytime soon. And and Warwick Thornton went on to make a, a really terrific um, kind of 
Australian Western called Sweet Country that is uh, ready, readily available on, on various platforms. And I recommend checking that one out as well. Yeah, no, it is, it is strong. I don't know between you, you compared it to Once Were Warriors. I, I felt like the docudrama aspect of Samson Delilah made it a little harder for me to, uh, you know, I mean, it's, you're, you're, there's, there's no place to hide. No, that's um, true. In in this, in the style, stylistically, it's, it's intense, but that's not to say it isn't absolutely essential viewing. Uh, You know, I felt like I got a look at a, at a, a community that I otherwise had never, had never quite seen this way before. And I think that's what's so important about watching films by indigenous voices, because you're going to see something that is, is unvarnished and, and true and, and feels, feels authentic in a way. And if that's, that's, that's not, that's, and of course we haven't had that, uh, from our settler perspective. So, uh, that's, it's really important and I'm glad to have seen the film. Well, that wraps up our look at a handful of a very uh, a much broader world of Indigenous filmmakers. But uh, hopefully this provides some sort of head start to look at some of these films and through through the names of the people in them, the people behind the camera, they'll lead you down a path of some pretty amazing storytelling in cinema. And, uh, you know, certainly all eye-opening films from our perspective. And I, I hope uh, you get a chance to see these films and learn something from them as well. My name is Stephen Cook, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And I'm Karsten Knox, and you can find me by the name of my blog on Twitter, Flaw in the Iris. And you can find Lens Me Your Ears on Facebook and also on Twitter at Lens Me Your Ears. And uh, as always, we'd like to throw our thanks to CKDU FM 88.1 for uh, airing the show every other Tuesday at 5.30 and also for providing us with production facilities and the folks at the Village Soundcast Network who uh, put it all together for us and, and get it up there on the interwebs. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.